Good day, everyone. You are listening to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast, and I'm your host, Rick Cole. Every week, we take you on a trip back in time to 50 years ago this week, and this time around, we're looking at the week of April 20th to 26th, 1970. Our podcast is made possible each week by the support of our two sponsors. Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive and they allow us to access all the news items that we report on from hockey land of the 1970s. We're also sponsored by the Breakwell Brewing Company located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario. In normal times, the folks at the break wall produce amazing craft beers and the best pub food on the planet. And during this time on the weekends, they're still providing takeout and delivery service. When things get back to normal, you have to make it to Port Coburn and have a beer and a burger at the break wall. In last week's show, some of the stories we discussed were the injuries that hit the National Hockey League officiating staff. We covered the ousting of the New York Rangers by the Boston Bruins and the St. Louis Blues victory over the pesky Minnesota North Stars. And we talked about the Red Wings hiring of Ned Harkness as their coach and how that might have given us a bit of a clue on how the team would be run in the near future. This week, the stories we'll bring you include our report on the division finals with the Eastern Division's most surprising results. We'll talk about Bill Gadsby being fired again by the Red Wings, and we'll catch up with Oakland Seals General Manager Frank Selke and what he's worried about on who might end up owning the troubled Oakland Seals franchise. Of course, we have all the rest of the hockey news that went on this week 50 years ago, so let's get to it. As the week began, the Boston Bruins were leading the Blackhawks one game to none in the Eastern Division Final, while it was St. Louis over Pittsburgh by that very same margin in the West. But since it was just one game in each series, optimism was still running high in all four cities, although in Chicago, based on their very poor performance in their game one against the Bruins, they had to be feeling a bit worried. Now, most observers felt that the violence in the Chicago-Boston series would probably exceed the foolishness that went on between the Bruins and the Rangers, but based on Game 1, it didn't look like either team was particularly anxious to resort to those tactics in this set. Boston coach Harry Sinden, as he usually does, had a ready explanation for the lack of uh, animosity between the two teams. Harry said Sunday's game didn't lend itself to hitting. He said when we were two goals ahead, it wasn't in the Hawks' interest to start hitting and the risk picking up a penalty and falling further behind in the game. And with us two goals ahead, I didn't want any penalties to risk putting us in a hole either. Sinden went on to say that their philosophy doesn't always call for hitting. He tells his players pretty much the same thing every coach tells all his other players. Harry simply tells them that they can't get by, they can't be successful if they don't play the man. Harry says that's been a winning philosophy in hockey for quite some time. Ask anyone who's been around the Toronto club for a few years. That is, around the Toronto club when they were enjoying success. Maybe not so much as we enter the 1970s. 
Meanwhile, in the other series, the game one of the Blues-Penguins series was a rough-and-tumble affair and a game that produced 149 penalties in minutes. Pretty well everyone figured that the Blues, who love to intimidate an opponent whom they feel is not equipped physically to respond, would try to run the Penguins out of the rink in St. Louis in Game 1. And while they did win... The Penguins were insisting they're not backing down from the brutal Blues. Coach Red Kelly said, I think it'll probably continue as a rough series. Uh, winger Val Fontaine, one of the more genteel member of the Pittsburgh club, saw the possibility of more fights. Val said it could very well turn out that way. They're a big, tough team, but we showed them that we could take care of ourselves as well. I think they thought they could run us off the ice. But our guys stood up to them. The Penguins have a truculent lung defenseman by the name of Tracy Pratt. And in game one, he took 32 minutes in penalties. Tracy had this to say after that game. At least we let him know we're here. He admired a newspaper photo showing John D'Amico, the linesman, holding him off the ice during one of the four big brawls in Sunday afternoon's game. Pratt is one guy who will stand up to the Plager brothers and Noel Picard of the Blues, and you know that those particular three are going to take runs at every penguin that moves, including that slick young center, Michel Briere. As Game 2 of the Boston-Chicago series approached, Eddie Westfall, the uh, defensive right winger of the Bruins, said that his instructions were quite clear. Eddie said, I'm checking Bobby Hall. If the Golden Jet works, I skate. When he rests, I rest. That's my instructions from Coach Harry Sindon. I'm glad he rested. I'll get enough ice time trying to keep track of him in the second game of the series tomorrow night. Eddie will typify the word shadow when it comes to Bobby Hull in the rest of this series, however long it might go. So Tuesday evening, the Blackhawks and the Bruins squared off for Game 2 at Chicago Stadium before the customary crowd of 16,666. Now in Chicago Stadium, they had probably at least 20,000 people jammed in there, but that figure of 16,000... 666 is the amount that the fire department will allow in the building at one time. So that is the reported attendance, but we all know it was a lot more than that. Boston, against the Hawks in this game, employed a strong checking strategy, and they tripped the Hawks 4-1, to while the Blues in St. Louis got a goal and two assists from veteran Phil Goyette to dump the Penguins by a similar 4-1 count. In Chicago, Bobby Orr, Johnny McKenzie, Don Marcotta, and Phil Esposito took care of the Bruins scoring to uh, take a 2-0 lead over the Blackhawks. Bill White was the only Chicago player who could manage to beat Boston netminder Jerry Cheevers when he scored a goal early in the final frame, but that was long after the issue was not in doubt. The Bruins held a wide edge in play in this game, outshooting the Blackhawks by a 32-23 margin. The only fight so far in the series broke out shortly after White's goal early in the third. That took place when the NHL penalty minute leader Magnuson of the Hawks tangled with Boston's big Wayne Carlton. As happened so often to Keith, who was a game young man, he got his ears boxed by the bigger, heavier, 
Carlton. Magnuson explained why he took on uh, a guy who's a little heavier and bigger than him. Keith said, I felt I had to start something to get us going. We were just playing shinny as far as the hockey was concerned. Chicago fans, as they did during Sunday's Game 1, inexplicably took to booing and cheering their star rookie goalie Tony Esposito, but the kid could hardly be blamed for this loss to Boston. Brother Phil, the star center of the Bruins, chided the fickle Blackhawks fans for having extremely short memories. As Phil noted to reporters after the game, Tony's the guy who got them there. And Phil isn't wrong about that. Without Tony's great goalkeeping this season, the new defensive style that the Blackhawks adopted would not have been successful. The idiots in Chicago Stadium littered the ice with all sorts of things. Coins, paper clips, and even a chicken. Not a rubber chicken, but an actual chicken which landed on the ice between the feet of Magnuson just missing his head. Had that thing, which weighed two or three pounds, hit Keith on the head, he probably would have been badly injured, maybe even out for the rest of the series. Now, the Bruins' Derek Sanderson had perhaps the best explanation of why Boston has already grabbed the stranglehold in this series. Sanderson says they came into this series peering around the corner and expecting the rough stuff. Instead, we're playing real good solid hockey and taking the game away from them. We can win the fights and we can win the brawls, but we can also win without them. While they've got their heads turned around anticipating trouble, we're putting the puck in the net. In St. Louis, Penguins coach Red Kelly turned to a strategy often employed by his old mentor, Punch Imlach, in the halcyon days of the Toronto Maple Leafs when they were winning Stanley Cups in the early 1960s. Red started four defensemen and aggressive center Brian Hextall against the Blues, trying to, as Red later put it, upset Scotty Bowman's rhythm. Unfortunately, Tracy Pratt and Dunk McCallum, two relatively slow-footed rear guards on the Pittsburgh defense, were completely unprepared for the speed at which the Bluins were able to mount and attack after the opening faceoff. The ploy backfired as the Blues took an early 1-0 lead. In fact, after only 31 seconds of the game, when John Gee Talbot's shot entered the Pittsburgh net. And for the most part, it was all downhill for the Penguins after that. Larry Keenan, who always seems to score big goals and uh, comes up large in the playoffs, along with Phil Goyette, added first period markers, giving the Blues that 3-0 lead after 20 minutes, and it would be too much for the Penguins to overcome. Frank St. Marseille, the veteran right winger, completed the scoring with a third period tally. Rookie Michel Briere, whom everyone is raving about in these playoffs and was easily the best Pittsburgh player on the ice, had the, had the Penguins goal early in the third period. Those who were in attendance at this game felt it never did live up to the standard the Blues normally set in the playoffs, and Scotty Bowman, the Blues coach, wasn't impressed much by what he saw from either team, and neither was Penguins general manager Jack Riley. Bowman said, you know, it's been a long time since these teams have had a good game. We had played the same style, both teams that is. We don't score a lot, 
but we don't give up a lot of goals. And Jack Riley responded to Bowman's uh, comments by saying, this wasn't a good game hockey-wise. Sure, the Blues won, but they weren't playing to their potential, and neither were we. The game was typically rough, as most games have been this season between these two clubs, but there's only one major altercation, and that took place when Bob Plager of the Blues squared off with Pittsburgh's Glenn Sather. Sather is not a tough guy, but he is an aggravating sort that really gives the Blues fits. Now, just for good measure, when Plager and Sather uh, tangled, the Penguins' Nick Harbrook decided to join in, and that was probably a good idea since Sather wasn't likely to be able to hand her Bob Plager all on his own. And really... Not many people in the hockey business would be able to handle Bob Plager all on their own. Scotty Bowman offered this assessment of that boat. He said, it's a good thing Sather got help from Harbrook. He's just a bench jockey. He couldn't lick his lips and he almost didn't have any lips to lick. Wednesday was an off day for the four teams as the two series moved to Boston and Pittsburgh, respectively. There wasn't uh, a lot of news to report, but Red Burnett of the Toronto Star, who had been assigned to cover the Eastern Division Final, came up with the story that there was a very good chance that the Blackhawks might switch goalkeepers for Thursday's Game 3 in Boston. Burnett said it was no secret that Chicago management was considering giving Jerry Desjardins, who was acquired late in the season from the LA Kings, the Game 3 assignment in an effort to light a fire under a Chicago team that seemed to be sleepwalking through the first two games at times. Bruins' Johnny McKenzie was incredulous at the suggestion. Uh, He said, how can you switch in a series like this? You go with your best. Tony is their best. He's the guy who got him there. The Bruins really had a lot of uh, respect for Tony Esposito, and McKenzie's sentiments were, it is said, echoed by several of uh, Tony Esposito's Chicago teammates. Meanwhile, as the Western final set up shop in Pittsburgh, it was the general assumption that the Penguins' only slim hopes in this series would be to somehow find some home ice magic. But for that to happen, Pittsburgh fans would have to turn out in droves, and for the most part in this season, Civic Arena had been an attendance wasteland. Things had picked up in the uh, Oakland series in the playoffs, But for the crowd to have any effect, a gathering of 12,000, which is nearly capacity in the Civic Arena, would be a must. Could Pittsburgh possibly rally around this team? Well, one thing in their favor is Coach Red Kelly has generated a lot of enthusiasm amongst its players, and the fans, if they can catch the feeling... It might just work. Pittsburgh would make one lineup change for Game 3. 38-year-old defenseman Jimmy Morrison was slated to return after missing the first two games of the series with a knee injury. Morrison is a veteran, heady, very smart defender, and he basically runs Pittsburgh's power play, and he's a far more valuable contributor than the stat sheets might suggest. 
Now, if you're a veteran hockey observer, and I would venture to say that many of the people who follow our podcast have probably been around the game in one way or another for many, many years, uh, you know that there's usually a telltale sign when a team is in trouble, and that sign most often comes from a coach or general manager. In this case, at this time, in this series... It's Pittsburgh's general manager, Jack Riley, a really good guy, by the way, who gives us the big tell. Jack's saying his team could be on top if only they could have gotten a few lucky breaks. When you're depending on luck in professional sports, the end is most definitely at hand. Riley spoke with the St. Louis Post-Dispatch reporter, Wally Cross, and he said... We didn't get the breaks in St. Louis. Jack went on to say that with a little luck, the Penguins could have won both games. In the first game, two St. Louis shots hit goal posts and bounced in, and only one of the Penguin shots hit a post, and it bounced out. Breaks decided that contest. Jack went on to say, We lost the second because we were too tight and didn't play our usual game. Riley went on to tell Wally Cross things will be different on our ice. Now we'll see what we're really made of. We've been coming from behind all year and we're just going to have to do it again. Thursday's game in Boston contained absolutely no surprises. Boston skated to a well-earned 5-2 victory over the Blackhawks and pretty well everyone who saw the game acknowledged that this series considered by the purists as the real Stanley Cup final, was over. Johnny Busick, the captain of the Bruins, was the hero. He scored two key power play goals in the second period. The first one tied the score at 2-2, and the second one put his team ahead by a 4-2 margin, and as far as the game was concerned, that was all she wrote. Wayne Carlton, Wayne Cashman, and Phil Esposito also had goals for the Bruins. It was Cliff Coral and Pitt Martin who had given the visitors a 2-1 lead at the end of the opening 20 minutes, but even that lead was a mirage. The Bruins held the edge in play during that opening frame, as well as for the rest of the game. Boston coach Harry Sinden felt his team wasn't even at its best in this game. Harry said, I didn't feel it was our best game at all. We had a real good second period, but the rest of the time, we were going in mostly fits and starts. The problem for the Blackhawks was, they weren't going at all. Despite Harry Sinden's proclamation, one thing the Bruins did do very well was check Chicago superstar Bobby Hull. Sinden employed a line of Derek Sanderson at center between Eddie Westfall and Wayne Carlton, and every time that Hall stepped on the ice, that threesome would hop over the boards as well. It was Sanderson who seemed to take it upon himself to do his best to frustrate, annoy, and antagonize and enrage Hull, and that strategy worked to perfection, as Hull had but one shot on goal, and it was not of the dangerous variety. Hull seemed to be distracted by the extra attention he was being paid, probably because that sort of thing didn't happen in the less meaningless games of the regular season. The Blackhawks did stick with rookie goalie Tony Esposito in goal, and the young netminder couldn't be blamed for this loss once again. On the few occasions where Chicago did mount any sustained threat, 
Boston's puck stopper Jerry Cheevers was more than equal to the occasion and it's obvious in this series that the Bruins goalkeeping despite fine efforts by Tony Esposito has been much superior to that of Chicago's. It's really difficult to imagine anyway that the Blackhawks could possibly win a game in this series but we'd have to wait until Sunday to find out that's when game four was going to be played at Boston Garden. Hopefully Whatever happens in that game, we'll be able to get some audio of it for you. In Pittsburgh on the same evening, before a raucous crowd of 12,923, which incidentally is a record for the Civic Arena and several hundred more than its listed capacity, that crowd turned out to cheer the Penguins to a surprising 3-2 win over the Blues and give Pittsburgh some life in the series, although they still trail two games to one. Rookie Michelle Briere whom we talked about a lot and is really showing potential to be one of the great Pittsburgh players, scored once and assisted on another goal to pace the Penguins' offense. Dean Prentice gave Pittsburgh a one nothing lead in the opening period with Jean Pronovo and Briere up in the count to 3 nothing by the end of the second stanza. Once again, it was Larry Keenan scoring a goal as he actually potted a pair twice within four minutes in the early part of the third period and that threw a scare into the Penguins but veteran goalie Les Binkley held firm and the Penguins went home with a big win. Now we don't know if this strategy actually worked or not but Red Kelly who as we know is been prone to using gimmicks and other promo, uh, motivational tools to get his players up for the game had an interesting pep talk for his charges uh, during the uh, pregame warm-up actually in the dressing room between the pregame warm-up and the opening face-off. Red walked into the room and he dumped $7,250 in ones, fives, tens, and twenties on the floor in front of all the players. Red looked at the players, looked at the cash on the floor, pointed at it, and said, that money's yours. If somebody's trying to take it away from you, you'd give them a hell of a battle, wouldn't you? Now, $7,250 is the exact total each Pittsburgh Penguin player would receive if they were managing to be able to beat the Blues and reach the Stanley Cup Final. It was for 60 minutes a very close checking game and the shots on goal reflected it even though there were there were only 40 shots total by the two teams in the game but the Penguins actually threw a defensive blankets over the Blues the likes of which they haven't seen in a long long time the Blues had only 14 shots on the Pittsburgh net over the entire 60 minutes and when a team can limit another team to 14 shots it knows it's done one hell of a job defensively. The teams resume the series on Sunday same as the Eastern Final between Boston and Chicago. 
So the teams had a full two days of rest between games and they weren't making a lot of news. The teams are kind of hunkered down and keeping to themselves. The newspapers uh, around the National Hockey League were full of features on players like Bobby Orr and Derek Sanderson, but there wasn't much pontification from the coaches on their new secret strategy to win or why their plans have uh, gone awry and they're falling behind. There was an interesting article by the veteran hockey writer Pat Curran of the Montreal Gazette. Pat, in his inimitable way, classed the much-ballyhooed Chicago-Boston set as pretty much of a flop. He called it one of the biggest bust series in Stanley Cup history, not even close to living up to the hype that had been presented in anticipation of what should have been a great matchup. Now, like we mentioned earlier with Jack Riley of the Penguins, you can always tell when a team's near the end of the line when management starts to say they're depending on luck. This time, it was Chicago coach Billy Ray who said, if we keep improving like this, the series is far from over. We haven't had one lucky break yet, and the turning point, of course, was the referee in that third game. Oh yeah, that's the other tell of the loser. Blame the officiating. That one bad call at a crucial point that caused the team to, to lose a crucial game. Never mind those losses in the first two games. They're irrelevant at this point, aren't they? If you really want hockey reasons for the Blackhawks' tumble from best to worst in the playoffs, at least in this week, one need only look at Chicago's youngsters. Their kids, Cliff Coral, Jerry Pinder, Keith Magnuson, they're feeling the playoff pressure, and believe it or not, it does take its toll. Ask anybody who's been in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Even Brian Campbell, another of those acquired from the Kings late in the season, and he's been around for a few years, he's having trouble dealing with the unfamiliar playoff intensity. Billy Ray calls it stopping skating and going flat. Now, whatever it is, the Hawks are succumbing to it, and they're not long for the postseason. It's that simple. This thing could be over, on Sunday afternoon. The Bruins, meanwhile, they're a loose, confident bunch, and a couple of their comments were reflective of that reality. Jerry Cheevers, who's sporting a massive bruise inflicted by a Dennis Hall slap shot, mused, After he hit me, I was laying there wishing to hell I'd been able to skate good when I was a kid so I could play some other position. Derek Sanderson joked about his lack of scoring in the series, saying that Bobby Hull's checking me so closely, I can't get a shot on net. And Sunday afternoon arrived, two games on tap for Sunday, one in the afternoon, nationally televised on the CBS TV network, at Boston Garden between the Blackhawks and the Bruins and the other one going at 8 o'clock in the evening at the Civic Arena in Pittsburgh where the Blues were visiting the Penguins. The atmosphere in Pittsburgh figured to be electric with the city suddenly caught up with their upstart Penguins challenging the veteran savvy Blues. Each of these two games would have a drama all its own. The game in Boston at least lived up to some of the pre-series hype and it was easily the most entertaining 
of the series. The Blackhawks produced a far better effort than they had in games 1-3, to but it wasn't going to be enough as the Bruins managed to end the series by eking out a really close 5-4 win. It was a goal by Johnny McKenzie with less than two minutes to play that snapped a 4-4 tie and gave Boston the highly unexpected four-game sweep. The Bruins in this game came out flying. They outshot Chicago by 14-7 and took a 2-0 lead in the opening 20 minutes of the game on goals by Don Marcotte and Captain Johnny Busick. Interestingly, Coach Billy Ray of the Blackhawks felt that Busick's goal was the one that really hurt Chicago. It was disputed by goalie Tony Esposito, but the replay would show that the puck did indeed cross the goal line to give Boston that 2-0 lead in the first. Bill Esposito with Busick and McKenzie up front. Stanfield and Orr, the point man on the Boston power play. Stanfield at center, a long shot. McKenzie racing in after it. Centered it and... Since he has stopped it, the red light is on. That puck just slid in across the goal line. Esposito felt he had stopped it. The red light went on. Here's another look at it. Now McKenzie centers it. Here's Busick's first shot. Esposito stops that. The rebound. Busick tries to flip it in. There it is, and you see it just across the goal line. At that point, the Bruins faithful figured it was going to be a cakewalk with a demoralized Blackhawks squad unable to mount any sort of resistance. But let's give the Chicago team a little bit of credit. That was not to be the case. The Blackhawks roared back to score three consecutive goals in the middle stanza to grab the game lead. Keith Magnuson, of all people, scored his first playoff goal of his career near the five-minute mark. The puck shot it on the boards. Busick taken out of the play by Makita. Here's Coral. Coral centered and right across the goal now. Magnuson the drive. He scores. Keith Magnuson gets his first Stanley Cup goal and he races into the goal trace to get the puck. And the Bruins have the man advantage. They lead the hockey game 2-1 as Bobby Orr goes back to his own... Not long after that, Bobby's brother Dennis Hull followed up with a pair of goals just over four minutes apart to put the Blackhawks ahead 3-2. Comes to Makita. Makita into the corner for Coral. Flip Coral. Across the goal. Dennis Dennis Hull set up beautifully. But the crusher would be scored by the Bruins' Freddie Stanfield exactly two minutes later, and that effectively smothered the considerable momentum that the Hawks had built in this period. The second period ended with the score tied at threes. Brian Campbell gave the game Blackhawks the lead again early in the third period, but they wouldn't be able to hold it. Ken Hodge deflected a Phil Esposito shot at the 13-19 mark of the third to once again tie the score, this time at 4-4, and that set the stage for the pepper pot Johnny McKenzie's game winner with less than two minutes left in regulation time. Five years ago, Senator McKee cleared it, but not out. McKenzie 
Passes to Stanfield. To McKenzie. Shooting. He scores! John McKenzie. Firing it into the top left-hand corner. And the Bruins go ahead 5-4. And the whole Boston Penn to congratulate McKenzie. So that was it. The game ended with Phil Esposito jumping over the boards and rushing to console his younger brother, Tony, the goalie for the Blackhawks, as the Bruins won the game 5-4 to four and eliminated Chicago in four straight games. Blackhawks coach Billy Ray, who was obviously disappointed, was still very proud of the season the Blackhawks put together, and he should have been. You can't lose sight of the fact that they were dead last in the Eastern Division when the season ended a year ago, and this year... They were the class of the entire league in the regular season. Billy said, we've lost four straight playoff games and our season is over. But I'll tell you all, especially you experts who never thought we'd even make the playoffs. I'm a tremendously proud man, proud of this hockey team, the way they worked, the way they tried. The way they fought all season. No team in my lifetime in hockey has given me the thrill that this team has. Billy Ray was not bitter. He was like a proud papa watching his young son mature. That evening, the scene shifted to Civic Arena in Pittsburgh, where nearly 13,000 fans jam-packed that venerable arena to see the Penguins and the Blues battle it out and the Penguins even the series shockingly at two games apiece eking out a 2-1 win. Once again it was charismatic rookie Michel Briere who thrilled the crowd and was the best player on the ice again. Briere clearly the newfound darling of Pittsburgh sports fans, showed them what they've been missing all year by staying away in droves from Pittsburgh home games. He set up the first Pittsburgh goal, scored by defenseman Dwayne Rupp in the first period. After Andre Boudria had tied it up near the five-minute mark of the second, Briere scored what proved to be the game-winner, just less than two minutes after that. The lightning-quick little center took a pass from veteran left-winger Keith McCreary. He skated around defenseman Bob Plager, who on this play did his best impersonation of a fire hydrant. Briere then broke in alone on Blues goalie Ernie Wakely and flipped a quick five-footer between the netminder's legs. Al Smith, who missed the first two games of the series with, of all things, the measles, was between the pipes for the Penguins in this one. It turned out that in that uh, second game, Les Binkley of the Penguins, who played well for them in the first two, tore some knee ligaments, and he won't be in net again this season. Joe Daly was called up from Baltimore, and he was Smitty's backup in this one. Al Smith was solid throughout the game and the Blues shooters were obviously sticking to a plan they had come up with to nullify Binkley's style of play and they had trouble figuring out the much more predictable Al Smith. 
Blues coach Scotty Bowman professed to be unworried about this sudden turn of events in Pittsburgh that left the series all even. Scotty wouldn't tell you if he's worried, even if he was. Scotty said they didn't look any better at St. Louis than we did here. Pittsburgh's hungry right now, but we're always a couple of goals better with the home crowd. Bowman, however, was being criticized in several quarters for the tactics he employed to slow Briere. This was a stratagem, however, that obviously didn't work. Scotty's plan from the opening face-off was to have his two goon-like rearguards, Bob Plager and Noel Picard, on the ice every time Briere appeared, and their job was simple. Rough up the kid at every opportunity. They learn one thing, however. This kid is difficult to scare and damn near impossible to catch. Pittsburgh coach Red Kelly himself, having incurred the rack of writers and fans for some of his moves, didn't think much of Bowman's ploy. Red said, He wanted my Briere. He wanted to put his Plager and his Picard against my Briere. I said, Okay, there he is. There's my little baby. Briere doesn't back up for anybody, and the kid didn't. No matter what happens when the series switches back to St. Louis for Game 5 on Tuesday, the Penguins now seem to have captured the imagination of Pittsburgh sports fans, finally giving them a show worth following and cheering for. They have assured themselves of at least one more game at home, and who knows how many more at this point. So aside from these very fine playoff games that are taking place, there was, as usual, during the Stanley Cup playoffs, lots of other hockey news uh, that was interspersed in between the games. That's the norm for this time of year. Had an interesting uh, quote from Buck Hool. Now, if you don't know Buck, he is the general manager of the Canadian national hockey team of Team Canada, of Hockey Canada, you might as well say. Buck was asked during the playoffs if he were an NHL general manager, what order would he draft the young players coming out of junior in the first round this year? Buck listed them this way. Gilbert Perrault of Montreal, obviously the number one, and Buck has Reggie Leach from Flin Flon in the second slot. Dale Talon of the Toronto Marlboros listed number three. A goalie Ray Martiniuk of the Flin Flon team in the West, number four. And Estefan's Greg Polis, number five. You'll note that Buck has listed three of the top five from Western Canada. Boston Bruins big left winger Wayne Carlton has some extra motivation for earning a large playoff bonus this year. In fact, the larger the bonus, the better for Wayne. Wayne is getting married in Collingwood, Ontario on May 22nd to local nurse Elizabeth Rudd and the two have planned a honeymoon uh, right after the nuptials, of course using the playoff bonus as money for travel. The well, highly respected sports writer of the Toronto Star, Milt Dunnell, always seems to find a good quote no matter where he looks. And this time, he was talking to Reggie Fleming of the Philadelphia Flyers, and he asked Reggie how much 
He thought Bobby Orr might improve over the next couple of years. Reggie didn't bat an eye, and his answer showed just how highly respected the young superstar is with NHL players. Reggie's answer, how much better could this guy actually get? The Hockey News announced a couple more of its postseason awards. To nobody's surprise, Bobby Orr was named the Player of the Year in the Hockey News. And the Coach of the Year, also no surprise, it's Red Kelly of the Penguins. And by the way, rumors continue to persist that Red Kelly will leave the Penguins at the end of this year and become the coach and possibly general manager of the Toronto Maple Leafs. If you will take your mind back to last October, say about two or three games into the new NHL season, you'll remember a hockey management move that came straight out of the blue and shocked everyone. That's when the Detroit Red Wings fired coach Bill Gadsby after his team had won their first two games. They replaced him with general manager Sid Abel, given several very foggy excuses for letting Bill go, including one that Gadsby wasn't sophisticated enough to be a coach for owner Bruce Norris. Owner Norris, not in the habit of employing a man to sit idly at home, basically forced Gadsby to take a scouting assignment with the team in order to earn his weekly paycheck. Well, poor Bill learned this week he's being gassed again by the Detroit organization for the second time in just a few months. And that happened just a few days after college man Ned Harkness had been retained as coach of the club. Bill was understandably shocked by the by the news. He said, I'm looking for a job now. I've had no other plans. It's a funny world, but you learn to roll with the punches. Bill said that they never did give him a reason for dropping him as a scout, and he'd like to know what he did wrong. He said he didn't know where he stood at this point. He had to find a job Bill noted that he sold his business and his home in Edmonton to take the Detroit coaching job and move to the Motor City, and now he has nothing, and Bill says, yeah, I feel a little bitter about it all. Can you blame him? Now, almost immediately, there were stories floating around about where Bill's career might lead him. One strongly rumored story came out of Rochester, where the... uh, Americans are the AHL top farm team of the new NHL Canucks and Hans Tanner of the Rochester Chronicle and Diplomat says that Bill is the best candidate to become the American Hockey League coach in Rochester. Well the Oakland Seals are out of the playoffs but General Manager Frank Selke Jr. is still the GM of the Seals and Fred Glover is still the coach and the uh, Transnational Communications of New York apparently still owns the Seals but really there are a lot of questions about what's going on with the Seals franchise. The organization is still in financial hot water something that never seems to change with this poorly run expansion team. Not poorly run so much by Selkie and Glover, but by the people who signed the checks. These guys really never have any long-term idea of what the plan is for the financial well-being of the franchise, although Selkie and Glover seem to have put together a decent hockey team. 
There have been rumors, even just in the last couple weeks, that Transnational was going to move the Seals and the Boston Celtics of the NBA to the Nassau County Coliseum in Long Island, which is slated to open next fall. That idea has been since scuttled by the NHL before any momentum could be obtained to make such a move. Now we've learned from Selkie at the moment that Transnational Communications is apparently negotiating with a couple of suitors who wish to purchase the Seals. Selkie is trying to stay on top of things in the hockey department. He's attending the Boston-Chicago series while Freddie Glover is taking in the Western Division Final. Both of them feel that they need to be able to hit the ground running if a new owner is found for the team and if they are retained by said new owner. Now here's what Selkie told us how bad the Seals finances were through this past season. During the year, a player both Selkie and Glover felt could be a strong asset to the team was put on waivers by his current club. All it would cost the Seals to acquire this player was the league waiver fee of $30,000. So the Seals put in a claim for the player. When ownership found out about the proposed move, they got contacted Frank Selke and ordered him to rescind the claim with ownership saying that the move was beyond what the team could actually afford. Selke said, that there had been another player that the Seals bought from another NHL team for the waiver price during the preseason, and they were told at that time that they would be able to pay $15,000 of the waiver price then, with the rest due to the team from which they bought them later on this fall. Selke thought that was reasonable at the time, given that there had been no ticket sales to that point in the year. That's no way to run a major league team in any sport. Even though their attendance increased this season by about 40%, the Seals are not an attractive investment for anyone. Still, they're said to be two interested buyers and they might be even starting a bidding war to take control of the team. We know one thing for sure. This uh, transnational corporation has seemed to mess this thing up from the very get-go and the sooner they're out of the hockey business, the better off for the Seals and the NHL and that's as long as a decent hockey owner can be found. If they want to keep this team in the Bay Area, the owner has to be a local person. If they can't find an owner that's local, they might as well pack up the team and find a hockey city that really needs a franchise. Of course, that won't happen. The NHL governors will not put the Oakland Seals in a new city when they are fully aware they can get six million large one from a sucker who'll take an expansion team. This situation is just a complete hot mess. And that is our show for this week, everyone. So what did we learn this time around? Well, we learned that the Bruins are the class of the NHL, and that's something that the Blackhawks, unfortunately, had to find out the hard way. 
We learned that, yes, the Pittsburgh Penguins do have a little more than a ghost of a chance against the Blues, and that's mainly because of the young budding superstar, Michelle Briere, and this kid might even turn Pittsburgh into a hockey town all by himself. And we learned that poor Bill Gadsby certainly hitched his horse to the wrong wagon when he accepted the coaching position from Bruce Norris. It's really hard to imagine Sid Abel treating Bill Gadsby this badly, and it begs the question, what's really going on with the Red Wings? Well, some of the stories we're going to cover next week uh, will be the Blues and the Penguins series. They'll finish up to see who gets the dubious honor of meeting the Boston Bruins in what can be nothing more than an anticlimactic Stanley Cup final. And we'll report on the first game of the final in that series. We'll cover a story out of Chicago that suggests that Bobby Hull may just become a Toronto Maple Leaf during this offseason. And we'll identify at least one of the suitors for the Oakland Seals. It might not be a hockey guy, but he's local and he's a sportsman of sorts. Please join us next week for another 50-year trip back to 1970. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole, and we can't thank him enough for all his hard work on this. Uh, The Toronto indie rock group, very popular rural Alberta Advantage, presides our introduction music, and they put on a great show live if you ever get a chance to see them perform when things get back to normal. They put on a great high-energy show. Other musical pieces and sound effects for the show are, of course, produced by Andy Cole. Our research comes from the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and, of course, the many fine publications found at newspapers.com. Don't forget to give a listen to the Let's Write a Song podcast hosted by Andy Cole. And Andy tells us, that new episodes should be available in the not-too-distant future. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years and on Facebook under 50 Years Ago in Hockey and at our WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com. Your favorite podcast app will have this podcast there, and we're also available now on YouTube. We're really enjoying bringing this show to you each week, folks, and we hope that you'll continue to tune in. And we also hope that the situation that we all find ourselves in right now will get better and get better fast. But in the meantime, please stay safe and stay well. When the ice-